Welcome to On Production, presented by Rapbook. Today, we're diving deep into the world of independent cinema with our exceptional guest, Miranda Bailey. With roles as a producer, director, actor, and distributor, Miranda truly embodies the multi-hyphenate spirit of filmmaking. She has over 20 films to her credit, including critical and commercial hits like The Squid and the Whale, Diary of a Teenage Girl, and Swiss Army Man. Raised in Vail, Colorado, and honed on sets and stages from New York to Los Angeles, she's here to give us the nitty-gritty details on how to excel in the art and business of film production. Welcome, Miranda. Thanks so much, Cameron. So, Miranda, you have a really interesting story. I mean, I'm curious, can you just give us a brief introduction, kind of how you became interested in telling stories through the moving image? Yeah, well... um, I knew I wanted to be an actress or be in making movies when I was eight because my dad was best friends with Brian Dennehy or he was one of his best friends. So he was Uncle Brian to me. And so I went when I was eight years old, I went to the set of him filming a movie called Little Miss Marker with Walter Matthau. And I or maybe I was younger or older. No, I think I was younger. But I remember it was like a giant dollhouse. <laughs> So for me, like the set and the stage, so I was in. And then I was like, well, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. And then I did. (laughs) Miranda, can you give our listeners like a step-by-step guide on how today you kickstart a new project and maybe how you did it when you first started as well? Because, I mean, your career has been really interesting in that it's it's both touched and continues to touch on documentary storytelling, but then also narrative feature as well. So I'm curious, like when you're thinking about taking on a new series, I mean, I think you're even moving into some like television series as well. Like how, how are you today from where you started thinking about how to dig in on some of these projects? How am I today from when I, when I first started deciding to produce? Um, I've learned a lot. <laughs> You know, listen, Cameron, if there was a step-by-step process, then everybody would do it. So there isn't one. Um, Each project is unique and they kind of come at you in different stages. So if you're starting from just as a producer wanting to make a project, obviously the first thing that you need to do is either have a script or an idea for a script or some IP, like a book or a play, or a short story, or a short film, or something like that from from there. So that's like stage one is as a producer to get, you know, your project. (laughs) Uh, Then you you need to get it into script form, which is oftentimes hiring a writer. A lot of times, a, a lot of filmmakers like myself are also directors and actors as well. So you kind of, a lot of people make their own projects. Um... And then from there, it's like kind of a spider web of what happens next, you know, um, and it depends on what type of movie it is. But no matter what, you need a budget that's not like a random number. Uh, be so shocked to how many people come to me. They're like, we're looking between seven and ten. And I'm like, really? All you need is like one and a half, really, to make this. <laughs> like, So, you know, you you want to hire a line producer. Um to, to give you an actual budget of your below the line anyway. And those are always kind of about the same number, depending on how many days you're shooting. So, you know, if you're shooting for 12 days, 
that no, it's pretty small number. And if you're shooting for 50 days, it's a much larger number, but it all the below the line, the daily rates are all the same because you're using, you know, or hopefully using IATSE and, 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 and unions and whatnot. Yep. Absolutely. What, for you with your projects spanning your career, like what is the range between shoot days for say, like the amazing Jonathan documentary versus like a, a feature film like super? Well, docs, you can't really count. Like docs shooting days are not at all the same in terms of production, you know, costs or anything compared to features. Totally different. I mean, you can make a documentary with just your iPhone. Uh, and lots of footage I have in a lot of the documentaries that I am, I, I have made are just iPhones have, you know, obviously there's also like cameras, you know, and pathological optimist. Sometimes we'd have two cameras. Sometimes we'd have no cameras and we would just have an iPhone or a tape recorder. Uh, you know, so you never know, like it's, that's, that's totally different, but for a feature, you know, I'd say somewhere between 15 and 25 days is pretty much the max for the movies that I, that I do like the indie films, like Diary of a Teenage Girl or Swiss Army Man or, uh, pretty much it. I've done 30 days before. It's never really been worth it. I don't think yet. (laughs) I think think you get, I think you either need like a lot of time or like just a, a little bit amount of time to make it good in terms of creativity. But that's just my experience. You have a lot of great experiences. For you, Miranda, is it fair to say that documentary was like a like a fantastic on ramp for you to get the experience and the stories in front of audiences that then kind of allowed you to catapult into different sort of scripted sorts of content? Or what what did that journey look like for you, just in terms of like actually breaking in? As a producer, I started with scripted. Yes. Uh, as a director, I started with documentary. Yes. So with the, my first documentary that I directed was called Greenlit and it was supposed to be just like the behind the scenes footage of the greening of this movie called The River Rye, but it ended up being such a disaster and so dramatic and this whole revolt from the crew to the producers that it became its own kind of funny movie. And then, you know, I just submitted it to South by for fun and got in and then went to South by as a director and was like, wow, directors are treated way better than producers. I think I'm going to go into directing. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, for you with your productions over the years, like, you know, you mentioned, of course, like below the line, working with the unions, of course, but um, above the line or, or folks that you've worked with over many different projects, like I'm curious, how have you selected and assembling your production team over the years? Like, where did you find your people? Who do you bring with you from project to project? Well, I mean, as a director, that's pretty easy. Like you kind of find the people that you want to work with forever. You know, like my composer, Craig Ritchie, is someone that unless he's unavailable, I will always use. Um, my DP, own Scharf, for feature films is someone I would use. He did Norman that I produced also. He did June Zero that's coming out this month. Uh, that Jake Paltrow directed. And then he did my movie Being Frank that I directed. But I met him through Joseph Cedar's film Norman that I produced. But then Mark Lesser has do- has DP'd all my documentaries that I've directed. So it's you, you kind of do it like that. In terms of finding your kind of crew when you're producing, you really want to select the right line producer for that um, 
that position for like the, you know, the crews, because that person will be the one to help you find whatever. But the director is the one who selects their first AD. Um, and ADs are kind of dependent on what location you're in. And if you're a DGA show or not a DGA show, um, so those kind of kind of switch around sometimes. I mean, I have some that I love, but they're not always available. Um, casting directors, kind of like I have the ones for my directing that I like to work with. And so like my my uh, partner, Oren Muberman, he also, you know, he likes to use the same casting director and like his same director of photography, Bobby Bukowski. But I think on other things, you know, you kind of you're kind of open. Editors are also nice to have in terms of like being able to to have the the one, but I've never really found one that's always available that I love, but I've never had one that as a as a director that I didn't love. How are you mixing up your time these days between I mean you you really work across the industry. Yeah, that's all. You've just become a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever produced a podcast? Yes, I have a podcast um called Cherry Pop that I executive produced. Um, it's a there you picks. Go. I have a company called Cherry Picks, www.cherrypicks.com, which is like the female rotten tomatoes, but way better. Like if you go to our platform, okay. it's just fantastic. It's like, uh, you know, my goal is to make it goop meets rotten tomatoes meets the cut, you know, meets um, Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, you, so, okay. Okay, so there's that entity. But then also you have a, a distribution business as well. Can you like dig into this? Like what was the necessity that created like your, what necessitated that? Like why do that? I mean, you've already been producing and directing, like why distribution as well? Well, one, I should have started distributing before I did anything else because then I would have learned what not to have made <laughs> and why it didn't work. And now I know, but, um, but well, why I have it now and why I started it are two different reasons. So we started the film arcade originally when things started going day and date and no nothing was going straight to theaters anymore. There was this period of time. There was like a like a three year period of time. That's when I did Super with James Gunn and we'd sold it to IFC and they went day and date. And what that did was it killed our box office. And then all of our foreign sales renegotiated, which really screwed us financially. And that was when I was like, mm, the, we need theatrical. And, and so many artists really want to have their movies seen in theaters. I, I'm all for day and date. Like I wish I could have had, being frank, the movie I directed go day and date. But Film Arcade's deal <laughs> with Universal at the time, there was a 90 day theatrical window because like everything kind of changed. Um, so that's why we originally started. It was like kind of bring theatrical back for indie films, um, giving indie films an opportunity to actually create some sort of box office, um, keep their foreign sales in place. And also they, you know, what was happening was kind of anyone was put, you, you, it was just the, the, it was getting flooded, the VOD, the video on demand, like, which was direct TV at the time. There wasn't like streaming. They, that was just getting flooded because until they made this like a uh, rule where you had to have 10 theatrical different cities, top 10 markets of theatrical. So by that time, that was good for us because we were already in that market. Right. So we were already 
we were able to do the theatrical and get it whatever. So we were able to like service deal out for a lot of studios too. So they would pay us to release their movies theatrically and then they would put them on on video on demand day and dates now that they could keep them in the rot like in the lineup because they had 10 theatrical spots. But there was this three year period of time where it didn't matter and just everything was just going out there and you never knew, you know, what what you were watching or where to watch it or anything because the PA spend was so different and you didn't have to buy ads and all these. It was just kind of crazy. I mean, it, look. If there's one thing that's consistent about the entertainment business, it's that no one knows what the hell we're doing and everything is constantly changing. And once you finally get the hang of something, something new comes along to destroy it. <laughs> you know, I'm really curious, like, are people just going to be watching theatrical experiences in high definition goggles in five years? Like, maybe so. And what does that mean? How is that going to work? We're 5D experience that way. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, like story is at the core of this, right? Like there is the studio system. You have studios being acquired by large technology companies. Distribution modalities are changing. How people are paying for stories has changed. Things are constantly shifting. There's AI. There's all these things happening. We're coming hopefully to the tail end of the strikes. Like, And yet for you as a distributor, as a producer, as a director, story has been central to your career. Maybe that's the only thing, strangely, that doesn't change, even though every story is kind of slightly different if they're novel in some way. Like for you, you mentioned a little while ago that you kind of wish you had inverted your career and started as a distributor to figure out what audiences want. Or like, I was a businesswoman at heart <laughs> as yeah. opposed to in brain. Like my heart is an art, right. my brain is a business person. So, you know. Yeah, how have you balanced that? And like, what what have you learned? I I mean, you know, one one foot in front of the other. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of do what's in front of you and what has to be done. I mean, as an artist, as an artist, if there's anything that I could like tell anyone, it's like don't wait for someone else to make your life happen because that doesn't it doesn't really work like that. I mean, there's the stories that you hear about, which is like like the same as the lottery winners you hear about. Totally. I mean, every overnight success is like 20 years in the making. Yeah, totally. Yeah, 20 years ago. I'll be overnight success sometime, I promise. <laughs> and so for you, though, like when you're thinking about finding a story or like committing to a project, like how long does this take? Like how much of your time is going to this? I mean, you have a limited number of figs to pull from the tree. Like you what for you? You don't have a limited number of figs to pull from the tree. That's the thing. And there is no such thing as how much time does it take each? I mean, super took one year. I've been on raised eyebrows for 12 years and it still isn't made. And we have Jeffrey wow. Rush and Sienna Miller and Oren Wooberman. And, you know, we had we had all the money and then it went away. Like it just you just don't know. Like I kind of I know this is a weirdly spiritual thing to say, but I kind of feel like every project is its own essence and it will get made when it is ready. <laughs> as long as you're you know, constantly there to kind of do the work. But, you know, things like Moonlight, that took like 10 years. Things take things. I mean, I'm rewriting the same script. I'm on I'm on draft 48 of a script right now that I will finally turn in on Friday that I will finally go out, you know, um, but things just take a very long time. And sometimes things happen overnight. 
So you just don't know. You just it, 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 There is no one way. So you just have to have patience, really. And if you play long term game, well, long term game, but not yeah. Persistence is you have to stick around, and if you stick around enough, worst case scenario, you learn how to lose everything really well. Okay, which is fun. Okay, which is fun, and then you learn by learning how to lose everything, you learn how to not lose things. So I've been fortunate enough to have successful um, films over the last six, seven years because of all of the mistakes that I made for 10 years. Can you dig into some of those big mistakes, what you learned, like, and how that has- Uh, You're not gonna sell your movie for $10 million and you're not gonna be nominated for an Oscar no matter what you think. (laughs) 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 Right? And, um, And that, if you don't like the people that you're working with at the beginning, it gets worse. It gets really, really bad. So start off liking people because inevitably what, someone is going to be a horrible human being on the on the project. So you have to love the project so much that it doesn't matter if it succeeds or if it fails, but you had a really good time, right? And that you're really proud of what you made. And that's all that matters. Don't ever do anything for the money because there really isn't any money in it. I mean, there can be, but that's just like an after effect. And it's not real money. It's not like it's not like the kind of money you would get in a corporate job at a studio or at a, you know, streamer. You're not going to make that. Like, being an independent film producer or director or, you know, film, film independent distributor independent publisher, whatever. If you're independent, it's a grind and you got to love it. I mean, how much of your time is like thinking about like, okay, this different state has a different film production incentive and this this story is available to us in this short window of like, how much of this is operational work versus like, hey, I'm an artist. I'm thinking about the story. I'm thinking like, how do you balance that? I think they're similar. I think if you're thinking about where it should be shot, you, you know, you're thinking about what the movie's going to look like. And then you take that idea, that creative idea, and you go, okay, what's the most cost effective way for me to do this? So that's kind of how you pick the state. But how much of my time is thought? Um, I mean, I don't, I think 29 hours a day. <laughs> I, mean, I dream it, you know? What else is there yeah. to think about? I have three freaking companies and 25 movies. So I don't know. Yeah, totally. How you're important... always thinking about something. Unless you're golfing. And then you have to clear your Do you mind. Golf? <laughs> Are you a golfer? I tried to be, but then I tore my rotator cuff. So I, I missed the season. I'm really stressed out right now, Cameron. And just had to stick with filmmaking. It is an athletic endeavor. There's no doubt. I mean, so here's a question for you. How important has the kind of independent filmmaking community been to your career versus like just buckling down and writing or producing or what is the mix? It's all independent filmmaking. That's all. I, there is no mix. It's all it's all one. Everything is I independently write, produce, mm-hmm. act, direct. I don't really. I mean, I just set up a show uh, at Netflix and shed, and set up and then the strike happened. And um mm-hmm. 
you know, obviously I've sold lots of movies to, you know, independent distributors or, 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 or studios, but I've always made them independently. That's just because I don't like really working for anyone but myself, though. <laughs> On a directing side, you know, how how do you make directorial choices that not only serve your narrative, but also then streamline your production process? It's like you have a certain number of days, you've got a certain budget. How do you go about dealing with those constraints? Well, normally there's other producers there with me. So on being frank, you know, I had um, Imagine was a financier um, pr or production partner. And um, there were producers on that and line budget. And like you just, you know, you deal with how many days do I have Jim Gaffigan? How many days do I have Anna Gunn? How many days do I have this? How much money do we have? And you kind of back it into there. I definitely did. I mean, I thought I was going to shoot it in Big Bear and I ended up shooting it in New York. So, you know, just you never know. You got to kind of be flexible. Like what doesn't bend breaks? And that is true. And I, any director who is stomping their feet on the ground of the way something has to be, which I have done at times. And half of the time it's worth it. Now the other half of the time it was not worth it. <laughs> but you got to get you got it's a compromise. It's a, it's everybody's working together. Like there's no the directing is is just one part of the cog. It's a very big part of the cog. It's a vision. But your goal as a director is to work really well with the cast and the crew and the producers in order to get everybody to create the same thing. Leave for me anyway. Can you share some tips on how you collaborate with your technical or production teams to make your visions happen? Yes, I listen to them, <laughs> um, and I don't think that everything everything that's my idea is the best idea. You know, you hire people smarter than you is always good. People you admire. It's kind of like when you play pool. Like if you play pool with someone who kind of sucks, your game kind of sucks. And if you play pool with someone who's like way better than you, suddenly like you're knocking like three balls in a row into the into the corner pocket. So it's like if you can do that with film and hire an editor that you really admire and a DP that you really admire and actors that you really admire, you know, then you know that it's a collaboration. But you can't be intimidated by these people either. I've seen that happen to directors that I've produced as well. And that's that's when you know, there's a diff you there's kind of this fine line between knowing what you want and getting what you want, right? Because there's ways to get what you want without letting anyone know that <laughs> and letting it, you know, kind of organically happen so that everyone feels part of it. I mean, what is what is your style as a director? How do you get what you want? <laughs> uh, I make everybody think it's their idea. <laughs> I lead them to come up with the idea. And I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's try it. <laughs> I love it. You mentioned a little bit earlier that like, you know, you learn something about this business, it changes. I mean, for you in having built a distribution business, can you walk us through today how you're thinking about solid, smart, best distribution strategy for the projects that you are doing? Yeah, it's really tough right now, I will say. It's really tough. Like we did, we sold um, Unknown Country, which was a, a new film. Lily Gladstone stars in and everyone will know who she is as soon as Martin Scorsese comes out. We sold it to Music Box and um, for not a lot of money, but they did an incredible job. And they, uh, but then again, the movie was made for like a dollar too. So th there's not a lot of money out there for buying right now. There just, there isn't. 
and there isn't even in the studios. I mean, there was just a, a buy for $6 million at, at TIFF, Netflix's like third movie, but like $6 million for Netflix is like zero. I'll bet you they made the movie for 16, maybe 20. So I think, I mean, for me, what I've, there's this thing called foreign sales. I don't really know about how much, how important it is anymore based on streaming and theatrical and all this stuff that's constantly shifting, but they used to have this and we still have it, but you know, they'd be like the, the highest that you think you can get for your movie outside of the U.S. Your what your asking price is, and then what your like worst case scenario is. And it took me too long to learn this, but always make it for less than your worst case scenario without U.S. And if you can do that, you'll probably get your investors' money back and their premium. And if you go into profit. That's a cherry on top. You know, across acting, producing, distributing, writing, all of it, the the full gamut. Do you have any specific examples of substantial production challenges you faced? And can you talk about how you have managed them and how you overcame them? Yes. There's always a substantial production challenge that you must overcome on every movie, no matter what position you're in. So that's just going to happen. But I mean, I've lost locations the day before. I've lost cast members a week before. I've lost the money in the middle of shooting. Um, we've had COVID. We've had strikes. So there's never not really a problem. <laughs> I think what you just have to do is keep a cool head. And... um not be afraid to pause and go, okay, just let's figure this out. Because emotions run really high with art and people's visions, whether it's your own or someone you're supporting as a producer. And how can you, I mean, that's actually what I really love about making movies, to be honest, is the problems and solving them. If only I was as good as that in calculus or whatever, like, you know. <laughs> I would have been a neuroscientist or something, but I would have cured some sort of dementia by now. But um, uh, what was this name? No, it's kidding. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I like the problems, actually. They make it exciting. But they always get solved. That's the thing. Is It's like you're all, everything is always figure outable. <laughs> always. It is. You just have to be open. One way or the other. You just have to be open to letting that the answer come in. For you, uh, lightning round, what are your kind of production hacks? They're not hacks. There's never a hack in production. But, you know, like what are the what are the go to things that you do or rituals that you have on your sets to kind of make life easier? Like, are you a. Uh, you mentioned as a director, you know, letting people kind of come to their own conclusions and have their own ideas. But are there like rituals or things on set that you think are just kind of unique to your style of filmmaking? Oh, yeah. Let me go back on that and on, on the ideas that that was also that's kind of was a little bit more for performance and a little bit more for camera stuff like well, camera stuff. Like, you know, we we pl plan all that out beforehand or like at least I do as a director. Um, and then your plan inevitably goes to shit because you don't have time to do that. So then 
you kind of know what you should do to get what you need, but you let you kind of feed that through that way. So just just so you know, it's like there there is a plan and blocking. I think blo- I like personally. I prefer, and I, this is probably because I'm an actor. It's started in stage. I prefer to block my actors and then let them work on the scene. Whereas I know a lot of directors, I've worked on a lot of movies as an actor where they'll be like, okay, you guys feel it out and the camera's watching and everyone's watching. And to me, that's just a waste of time. It's like, okay, this is where she's going to be. This is where he's going to be. This is what the camera movies are going to be. Okay, now you guys make it work, right? And that seems to work well with the actors. And if there's something that gets stuck and I know how it can be fixed, that's how then... I can kind of curve them into figuring out how to fix it themselves. But what are my hacks? Which would be always spend money on a good first AD and always, you know, because your schedule is constantly going to change and always spend money on good food. Those are the two kind of things you can't really live without. Absolutely. I like that. For you, what are new trends or tools? What are your go-to books, resources, sources for spiritual inspiration to keep pushing and keep going and keep making stuff in this business? I don't know if I have any sources. <laughs> but I have like I think what I think is a really great resource <laughs> for people is our labs. You know, whether it's the Sundance Lab or the Film Independent Lab or any kind of script writing lab, I think contests, filmmaking contests are great. I think filmmaking and script contests are great. I think they they really help you. I think the blacklist as a writer, you know, is I mean, I haven't put my personal stuff up on there, but that's always something I advise the people that I mentor or coach is to do that, um, is to, you know, get feedback from, you know, pay for feedback basically, because people who are your friends, you're either going to get pissed off when they tell you what you don't want to hear, or they're not going to tell you what you want to hear, or, or they're only going to tell you what you want to hear. So it's like, you know, I mean, if you want on it, if you really, really want it to get, be the best it can be, you kind of want fresh eyes. And that's the same with editing. Yeah, the same with like having a test screening. Real feedback. And I don't mean like a Hollywood test screening with like a random strangers where they, you know, big movies do. I mean like a test screening with, you know, producers who invite their people and crafts and crew who invite their people and you fill out a thing. And um, that's, you know, really helpful confirming what you already know isn't working. That's awesome. Well, Miranda, I want to give you an opportunity to plug all of the cool, amazing stuff that you're doing with your businesses so that people can find you, watch your movies, get engaged with all of the amazing stuff you're doing in the community. So let it rip. Tell us where we can find you. Okay. So in terms of distributing, one of the things that I started is called the Carousel Program. It's it's out of the film arcade and it's for indie filmmakers to basically self-release their films without paying any overhead fees. <laughs> without paying any interest fees, without having to pay for a poster that you don't want uh, on a fee that you don't actually know it was spent with and you get your movie back in three years. So check out thefilmarcade.com and that is for movies for under $2 million so that they can get up on Apple, Amazon, 
basically every single platform, VOD, and you're in full control as a filmmaker for what you can do. And we just, we're there to help you. That's it. And then I have a movie that comes out this in a couple of weeks, but like, I think it's October 21st or 22nd. And it's a Hebrew language film. It's called June Zero. It's directed by Jacob Paltrow. Yes, Gwyneth Paltrow's brother. And no, he does not speak Hebrew. But yes, we shot it all in Hebrew. Uh, and it's really, really good. And um, the trailer should be released, I think, by the end of this week by Cohen Media Group, who's releasing it. It's going to be theatrical. We just got Unknown Country up on iTunes and all that stuff through Music Box. It just had its theatrical run. It's got like, I think, a 99, if not 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes and then Cherry Picks as well. So uh, check it out. It's called Unknown Country. And um, it went to say it opened at South by Southwest. Um, and it stars the girl who's going to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress this year. So go see it so you know who she is before you see her come out in Martin Scorsese's movie. And then for female and non-binary critics and entertainment writers on our scoring system of what movies we like, it's thecherrypicks.com. That's it. And if anyone wants to get into financing and P&A, we are raising money for what may, you may have seen come out in the news last week, uh, a new TV series called Unconventional, which we're putting out on video on demand so that we can accurately report to all of the artists and actors and financiers, as opposed to some of the streaming services that are having funky Hollywood mathematics to them, to their, you know, reporting. Can you dig into that a little bit? Like, what's the story there? I was reading about it. I think it was in Deadline before we jumped on. So we shot a independent film show, a TV show, and it's really, really good. It's got Bo Bridges in it. It's got Kathy Griffin. It's got an incredible cast. And, you know, if this was, you know, four years ago, and actually, you know, just before the pandemic, I mean, um, if the pitch was something Netflix did want, and we decided to make it independently um, so we could own most of it, right? Foreign-wise and everything like that, because we could make it for a lot less. And then people would be able to participate in the actual ownership of it. The people who acted in it, wrote it, directed it, et cetera. But I don't know if you notice where the country is going right now, but there's a lot of laws, anti-LBGTQ laws that are happening. Now, since corporations own the streamers and they own the studios, that is half of the country in their mind as, you know, kind of audience. And they are now you know, pulling back on shaking up anything because, for instance, what happened at Target this year with Pride, it was picketed and they had to take all their Pride stuff down, right? So Hollywood's on a shaky ground anyway and these corporations who own Hollywood are deciding what, what you know, what to what to do and what not to do and just, just do the easiest thing, like don't rock any boats or... You know, no, we don't want to get anyone canceled and we don't want to be boycotted and we don't want to this. And it's just ridiculous. The The feedback that we got, I mean, it's a good show. So you'll see it. We're going to release it in the first quarter, probably around Valentine's Day. It's a great show. And um, it's nine episodes. And maybe they thought it was too expensive to buy. That's also possibly true because 
it looks really good. Like, you know, Swiss Army Man, we made for under three. Um, God's Country with Tandaway Newton, we made for two million. We sold it for four. So people are always surprised by how much we can make something look good. So maybe maybe they all thought yep. that the amount of money that they have to spend to buy it and the amount of money that they have to spend to market it wouldn't be worth it, but it would have. But at the same time, if they marketed it, it would have affected half of their subscribers, right? Possibly in their mind. Because it's like very sexy and it's it's all it's all LBGTQ characters. Like there's not any straight. It's awesome. I mean, there's like not. It's not a straight story, and there's not just like one character who's like the best friend. Good, you know, it's like, and it's not Will and Grace <laughs> either. It's not like a sitcom that's just have one joke after another that's inappropriate. So it's you know, it's really um, right. I'm excited for it because I kind of wanted to release it myself anyway. <laughs> When we were doing it, but we had financial partners and we were like, okay, well, we'll sell it to Netflix. We'll make some money. Fine. No big deal. But then we took it to a handful of a handful of distributors. Not a, not a lot. And when, when I started getting the feedback of like, we really love this show, but you know, if it had less gay characters, it's like, well, that's the whole show. That's the part you love about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those are the characters you love. <laughs> We're like, well, we don't want to alienate half our subscribers based on what's going on right now. And it's an election year. It's like, whoa. I just realized that. And I was like, let's not keep going. Let's not try to go like to Logo or something. I mean, gay people don't even watch Logo. Where are you, Where is it going to be? It's going to be on video on demand. It'll be everywhere. It'll be just like any movie. It'll be it. it. The Her thing that's funny is, and I think people know this, but they forget, you can buy any TV show on Apple or Google or Amazon. That's how I watched Yellowstone. Yeah. I don't have Paramount Plus. I just buy the seasons. Totally. I bought Downton Abbey. I didn't have PBS or whatever. I bought Downton Abbey on iTunes. So you'll be able to buy Unconventional on iTunes, yep. you know, in the end of February. And you'll be able to that buy the whole season. Steven Soderbergh just did his own TV show and released it himself. But he released it on his own website because he's not a distributor. So he didn't have the ability to put it up everywhere so you've got to, you have to go to steven soderbergh's website which i highly recommend that you do because it's a super cool show 7.99 for the whole season it's awesome and i think that we are at the beginning of independent television and i think that's a good thing about these strikes and i am very excited that our cast and crew who participate will actually get to see how many people bought it how many people rented it you know as opposed to this Writers Guild deal that just happened, like, well, out of the top performing shows, we'll let you see 20% of those shows, and you may or may not be able to participate in that. It's like, it's all just, if you look at the language of the WJ contract, what, what they're signing away and they're agreeing to, yeah, it's open the door. But it is nowhere near transparency like it's not even close miranda are we in a renaissance or are we close to one when aren't we i mean i remember when everything was filming i was like "Ooh, let's use the red and everyone i had to have this whole conversation with liev schreiber to promise liev that digital was just as good as as film he almost two days before the movie decided not to do it because it was going to be shot on a red and i had to convince him that we have Nancy Schreiber, who's you know the best fucking DP in the world, shooting it, and that he's gonna be fine. 
And look at it now. You can't even shoot on film. Although June Zero was shot on Super 16. And I'm really, really glad I wasn't there for the day that we had 69 setups. I love it. <laughs> With a Super 16. <laughs> My God. Well, Miranda, Miranda Bailey, thank you for being on On Production. Really appreciate your time. You bet. Thanks so much, Cameron.